Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. The Labour Party has been strong, not because we are hairy-chested about it, but because it's about supporting peace and stability in our region. The greatest way of promoting peace and stability is to invest in deterrence. Like, aggressors, people who would have ill intent to Australia, don't respect weakness, they respect deterrence. They respect people putting question marks in their mind. Hi, I'm Daniel Hurst, Guardian Australia's Foreign Affairs and Defence Correspondent. Joining us today on Australian Politics, we have the Minister for Defence Industry, International Development and the Pacific, Pat Conroy. It's been a big week for Minister Conroy. Earlier this week, he was in the Pacific, trying to shore up the relationship with Solomon Islands at a time the country is increasingly looking to China for policing assistance. And on Thursday morning, he was back in Canberra announcing a contract worth up to $7 billion for Australia's new infantry fighting vehicles. In the background, Minister Conroy has been working to ensure that the AUKUS nuclear-powered submarine plan sails through the US Congress. But will Labor members raise their concerns when the party holds its national conference in Brisbane in August? Minister Conroy is here in the Podcave to talk us through all of these issues and more. Minister, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, you've just come from a press conference we've announced a big decision. Uh, you've gone with the South Korean uh, offer for new infantry fighting vehicles over the German bid. First of all, can we start with a threshold question? Many people may not be familiar with infantry fighting vehicles. What are they designed to do and why does Australia need them? So infantry fighting vehicles are large armoured vehicles that transport troops into battle and allow give the protection so that troops can actually fight from them as well. So they complement tanks uh, and they're designed to survive on the battlefield. And they're a really important part of what's called high-intensity conflict. So the really big... Uh, uh, conflicts where there's lots of um, uh, weapons being thrown around. These are really important from that point of view. Uh, and uh, they're part of what's called a combined arms concept where you have tanks, you have infantry in infantry fighting vehicles where they're protected, you've got artillery, you've got helicopters, jet fighters, the whole kit and caboodle. So they are sort of at the extreme edge of the sort of conflicts that you can envisage the Australian Defence Force engaging in. So it's a very important announcement and another step in implementing the Defence Strategic Review. I guess it begs the obvious question, you know, is it is it preparation for the possibility of war? It's about modernising the Australian Army. The Defence Strategic Review said that we needed to transform the Australian Army, one that uh, had the ability to fight combined arms battles, but also to be able to engage in what's called littoral manoeuvres, a manoeuvre around the, the edges of the land and sea. Uh, 
And so the Defence Strategic Review recommended that we bring forward the acquisition of these infantry fighting vehicles, marry it up with landing craft so that they can be transported to places we might need to transport them to, and invest in what's called long-range strike, which means missiles and rockets for the Australian Army so that the range of the Australian Army goes from 40 kilometres to over 500 kilometres. This is all about modernising the Army to make it a stronger tool of deterrence to promote peace and stability, and that's very important. Who are we deterring? We're deterring anyone who might have um, aspirations of threatening us. This is very important. This this is not about other countries. This is about us having a strong defence to deter future conflicts. I think if you look at uh, whether it's the Ukraine conflict now or in the lead-up to World War II, um, deterrence really matters demonstrating the ability to inflict pain on an aggressor gives pause and questions in the aggressor's mind, and that, in the end, leads to stronger support for peace and stability. So that's why I support it as a progressive politician. Well, on the infantry fighting vehicles decision, uh, you said the indicative price is between $5 billion and $7 billion. Um, What sort of cost premium was there for uh, ensuring manufacturing within Australia rather than just buying them from uh, being made offshore? There was a a very small uh, a premium, uh, but it was... 10%, uh, 20%? I'm not going to get into commercial incompetence, but it was very small, very small. And that demo, that provided very significant economic benefits. There are certain military capabilities that we need to manufacture in this country to maintain our sovereignty where you do not want to rely on other people. And so that's why the strategic reasoning as well as the economic benefit meant that a local build was the best value for money for the Australian government. Hmm. How confident are you in that time frame of the first vehicle being delivered early 2027, the last by late 2028? How assured are you? Because that seems fairly ambitious, particularly the whole project being start to finish, well, the delivery I'm, time frame. I'm, I'm confident, and that's what Hanwha has submitted in their tender documents, so it'll be a contractual obligation. This was one of the big decisions out of the Defence Strategic Review, um, the idea that instead of ordering up to 450 of these vehicles, that it would just be an order of 129. Um, uh, even though you're saying they start to arrive sooner and, and that order's finished uh, sooner, uh, it seems like a short period where it sort of starts rolling off. Would there have been an argument for once that been stood up to, to actually be able to um, order more of them? In other words, is there a cost premium for doing a smaller order per, uh, per vehicle? It's one that we we haven't um, looked into too closely because the 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 savings freed up from reducing the number of vehicles from four hundred and fifty to one hundred and twenty nine is funding um, investing in long range strike for the Australian Army, so missiles and rockets to give the Australian Army long range teeth and to bring forward and expand a number of landing crafts. So it's one where this was the right decision, as recommended by the DSR, uh, to really give us that combined arms approach that's really important, that flexibility. Obviously, one of the advantages of having local production is uh, a future government may decide to um, extend production. Uh, and the other benefit, quite frankly, is that Hanwar have indicated that they'd like to see the Geelong facility as an export base for Redbacks for the rest of the world. If they win other tenders around the world, they, they want this as a second supply source to their facilities on the Korean Peninsula. And, and, and that's part of 
not just their strategy, the strategy of the Republic of Korea government to um, have second supply sources where so it So it might sense. not necessarily just stop there, but it could be exported from um, Australia. But also, I think you mentioned a future government could decide that, to order mm. more if, if, if that was viewed necessary at that point. Yeah, future governments, obviously, if the production facilities are in Australia, have the opportunity. It's a lot easier to order from an Australian production line than overseas, so they have that flexibility. But we are hopeful that there will be export orders if uh, Hanwha win tenders tenders in other countries. Um, Now, these will be manufactured in the Geelong region. Um, The Defence Minister, Richard Mulls, said he had recused himself because Mm. his electorate being there. Mm. Can you just set me through what that sort of recusal looked like? Was he involved in any of the NSC discussions, National Security Mm. Committee discussions on this? So um, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister made this decision uh, last year, very early in our government. I think it was around July. I can get the correct month, but I'm pretty sure it was July 2022, that to avoid a perception of a conflict of interest, he will not be involved. And he hasn't been involved in a single stage of the process. All submissions and advice from Defence have come to me solely. And it was my uh, job to take it through the Cabinet decision-making process. And Minister Miles wasn't present for any of the discussions. He wasn't present at any wasn't, at NSC meetings. Wasn't present for any discussions on this topic. He uh, physically I, left the room. It, it, it was a model of how you should make these decisions and avoid conflicts of interest or the perception of conflict of interest. And I wish previous governments had done the same thing, to be quite frank. One more on the infantry fighting vehicles before we turn to broader mm. topics. Um, the the losing bidder, uh, the German company Rheinmetall, um, it, this is just two weeks after the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, went to Berlin and announced this export mm. deal for 100 boxes to be exported mm. from its facility mm. in southeast Queensland to, to Germany. Mm. Um, I think you said at the press conference on Thursday that it's that you're hopeful that that proceeds, you see them as separate mm. uh, arrangements, but uh, how confident can you be? Do you think that that's in jeopardy? Oh, look, I think there's a spirit of goodwill on both sides to continue it. I think uh, all parties have been very clear that they are separate and the uh, chief of the German army who's out here for exercise talisman sabre said... Uh, things publicly along those lines. And there's uh, very strong strategic reasons why Germany would still be interested in that deal, given um, their very significant increase in their defence budget and the need to deliver capabilities earlier and hence use an Australian production line rather than try and build a facility in Germany or add on to another production facility. The question is whether it changes the the economic viability of the Rheinmetall facility in South East uh, Well, that, that facility has lots of work on. So uh, it's delivering combat reconnaissance vehicles, the so-called boxer vehicle, out to the end of 2027, and then it will shift to sustaining and maintaining and upgrading those vehicles. They're also contracted to integrate and sustain 3,500 army logistics vehicles, think medium and heavy trucks, and that's that contract goes past 2030, and I announced a contract earlier this year, their first contract with the Royal Australian Navy for uh, what's called multi-ammunition soft kill systems, which sounds very ominous, but it's effectively decoys and chaff to flare missiles, to distract missiles trying to hit our ships, and they'll manufacture that at that facility in Brisbane um, out to 2027. So there's a lot of work going on there, and um, we're hopeful that if we can continue to land this export deal, that that facility will have a bright future. On the Defence Strategic Review, uh, it's sort of a common theme in some of the reaction to it that there was no new um, money 
uh, in the first four-year budget cycle, that that there's a shift in priorities um, uh, and no extra money being added in the immediate term. Does that like if the if the circumstances are as urgent and and dire as as you suggest, um, is there a mismatch there? Uh, we've made the hard decisions. We we it's really important to go back to first principles here. We inherited a situation where the last government added in the last three years of its term $42 billion of additional uh, spending requirements for defence without adding a single cent to the defence budget more than what was planned or cutting something else or reducing in scope another project. So they effectively spend another $42 billion of money with nothing um, provided. Uh, and that's on top of $12 billion of actual cuts from the defence budget. So we inherited that situation, which we have to work through and we are working through. Uh, and as part of the Defence Strategic Review, we announced six immediate priorities and we have made the hard decisions around reprioritising $19 billion over the four, four years to start those pr- priorities. And that's important. And that's that's flowing through the system right now. Importantly, we have committed to increasing the defence budget and the um, budget delivered by Jim Chalmers in uh, May um, had the medium-term projections and that showed that defence spending would rise by 0.2% of GDP over the decade more than it would otherwise be. Before that budget, defence spending would hit 2.1% of GDP. Um, Now it'll hit 2.3%. That's tens of billions of extra dollars going to the defence budget to meet the defence strategic review priorities and importantly, um, modernise the ADF to deter potential aggressors and promote peace and stability. It's very important that we always have the long-term objective. This is not just about spending money for spending money's sake. This is about providing deterrence in a region that is facing the greatest strategic uncertainty since 1945. Does this extra spending um, create extra pressure for the government to to do more when it comes to social spending, when it comes to cost of living relief? Do you oh, think that that political that might start to bite politically? I think that uh, a good government can do both if it's fiscally disciplined, and we're delivering the first surplus in well over a decade um, because we're fiscally disciplined. I think around. Um, nearly 90% of all the additional revenue has been banked and saved and used to pay down debt rather than um, spent on things. So we can provide targeted cost of living relief, which we are doing, invest in social programs, which are really important, and increase defence spending where it's strategically justified, and it most certainly is. I'd like to turn to AUKUS um, and the nuclear-powered submarine plan. Uh, The US-ranking Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, Senator Roger Roger Wicker recently said that um, or raised questions about whether the US's own uh, submarine needs uh, are adequate, and he sort of questioned whether um, enough funding was going to domestic production and put a question mark over um, approving the transfer of Virginia class submarines to Australia in the 2030s. How concerned or otherwise is the Australian government by this sort of um, positioning in the US? Oh, I'm confident that. Um the, the legislation authorising the transfer of those two submarines will uh, be supported by Congress. I've, I visited Washington in June um, to uh, engage with senior um, 
members of Congress, uh, and I had really good discussions with key leadership figures in the Senate and the House. And there is a very strong support for AUKUS. There's very strong support for us acquiring nuclear-propelled but conventionally armed submarines to increase deterrence in the Indo-Pacific. And what you're seeing is the normal colour and movement in Congress, and I, I don't want to be a political commentator of that, but I'm very confident the legislation will go through. And that there is a very strong commitment across all parts of the US government to to achieve this. And I'll note that the US Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro was in town and said very similar things on Friday. Mm. And I mean, I guess the question is, uh, does it illustrate that there's political risk uh, given this is a multi-decade program and depends on successive Congresses and administrations uh, in the States? Does it sort of start to point at some of the political risks that AUKUS could face in, in its implementation? Well, I, I, I think that this is a revolutionary partnership they're engaged in. It's a technology sharing and industrial collaboration pact to advance peace and stability in Indo-Pacific and uh, deepen the alliance with the United States and our friendship with the United Kingdom. And I'm confident they'll be delivered because it's in the it's in the national interests of not just Australia, but the United States and the United Kingdom. I visited um, the um, electric boat shipyards in Connecticut where one of the two shipyards where they build their nuclear submarines, and I'm confident that they will increase their, uh, they are increasing their production rates, not just to meet the needs of the US Navy, but to support the transfer of, of submarines to Australia. And it's in all our strategic interests because we do need more deterrence in the Indo-Pacific if we're to uh, maintain peace and stability. As I said, we've seen the greatest military buildup in this region since 45, and it's important that the United States, Australia, United Kingdom respond. In those conversations in when you went on that mm. trip to the US, what sorts of questions were you asked by congressional figures? Uh, uh, do people, do anyone in the US system question what Australia's stance is, for example, over a future conflict on Taiwan? Uh, we didn't get into hypotheticals like that, but they they were very happy that there's bipartisan commitment to uh, the AUKUS uh, pact, just as um, there'll be many different Congresses, there'll be many different Australian parliaments over the next uh, 30 years, and um, that bipartisanship is there on both sides of the Pacific, and, and they were really relieved about that. Australia has committed, or the government has committed, uh, to $3 billion in funding over four years towards the US uh, production facilities. Um, uh, that was a point of contention a few months ago when it was announced. But this Senator Wicker has said that that $3 billion isn't enough. Uh, do, you, do you think Australia will face pressure to top up that funding in a significant way? Uh, without providing direct commentary on Senator Wicker's um, remarks, my understanding was that he was talking about pushing for more US investments rather than more Australian investment. And my point is that $3 billion we're providing is part of a much larger investment the US has already um, put through their Congress to increase the production of uh, Virginia-class submarines and improve sustainment performance so that they have less um, submarines being maintained out of, out of the water. And as I said, when I visited Connecticut at the shipyard, um, we're seeing a ramp up in production. They'd like it to go faster, um, but they are ramping up production and they're doing really important things to, to, to achieve that. And I think obviously um, there, there are elements of Congress that have a view about is it the right level of resourcing, but I'm not going to engage in commentary about US domestic politics. Mm. Um, the White House's uh, Indo-Pacific coordinator, Kurt Campbell, a few weeks back uh, at a think tank said, 
when submarines are provided from the United States to Australia, it's not like they're lost. Uh, they will just be deployed to the closest possible allied force. Do you see any contradiction between that and the Australian government saying that it has complete sovereign control of these submarines? No, they're completely consistent. Can you just explain to our listeners how that's consistent? It's consistent because Kirk Campbell is just making the point that um, these submarines are being uh, transferred to the United States as closest ally, an ally that um, Australia and the United States work very closely together. Um, we engage in, we develop common tactical concepts. Our soldiers and sailors serve in each other's military. Uh, and so there's a level of commonality there that is really useful and really valuable. And um, But at no point did he or anyone in the US system diminish or suggests that these will not be sovereign Australian assets. The minute they're transferred to Australia, uh, they will be under control and command of an Australian captain and they'll be directly responsive to commands from the Australian chain of command. I have no doubt that's technically true, but doesn't it suggest the US views them as you know part of the US's own uh, calculations in a future conflict, that it's, it's not like they're lost, he said, to the US? I think he sees it as uh, supporting the efforts of the US's closest ally to increase deterrence in the Indo-Pacific, that we're like-minded countries, we we share a lot of values. That doesn't mean that we have the right to dictate to the other country what they do in any given situation um, or an obligation outside of the ANZUS alliance. But um, we have been very close for over 100 years. We're both strong democracies and um, we have a lot of common values. Uh, still on AUKUS, but more domestically, the Labor National Conference is coming up. Uh, you're a senior figure in the left and close to the Prime Minister. What's your expectation about what National Conference will do, whether there'll be a full-throated debate on AUKUS or whether it'll be um, uh, uh, happy families? Well, I'm sure there'll be a good debate and I'm very confident, as I've said publicly, that the conference will support AUKUS. They'll support AUKUS because it's in our national interest. And it's a progressive policy. Like, How, um, how so? <laughs> thank you. I, I imagine you'd ask about that. Um, it is a progressive policy. We're the party of um, Andrew Fisher, who founded the Royal Australian Navy. We're the party of John Curtin, who saved Australia during World War II. We're the party of Ben Chifley. We're the party of Whitlam, who modernised the Department of Defence. We are the party of government that has always been strongest on national defence. The Liberal Party have been a party of appeasers uh, during and in the lead up to World War II. They brought us into Vietnam on a lie. They brought us into the Second Gulf War on a lie. Um, They are weak on national security. And the Labor Party has been strong, not because we are hairy-chested about it, but because um, it's about supporting peace and stability in our region. The greatest way of promoting peace and stability is to invest in deterrence. Like aggressors, um, people who would have ill intent to Australia, um, don't respect weakness. They respect deterrence. They respect people putting question marks in their mind. And that's why we've always been committed to strong defence policy. And ultimately, it's progressive because who fights wars? It's workers. There's an old adage from World War One or World War Two that um, there's a worker on both ends of a bayonet. And so you want to avoid war, and the best way you avoid war, because war is horrible. War destroys lives, destroys families, destroys hope, takes resources away from what can be done to improve, tackle inequality, tackle poverty. Um, And the best way of avoiding war is to 
invest in deterrence and strong national defence. And just to give you an example of it, even at the end of this decade, even after us invest increasing spending in defence, we'll spend 2.3% of GDP of the Australian economy on defence. At the height of World War II, we were spending 40% of our national economy on defence. We want to avoid that situation because it hurts working people and pensioners the most, and that's why we've always been strong on defence. Has the Prime Minister signalled that he doesn't want a dissent on AUKUS at, at the conference? Uh, I, I haven't seen those conversations. I've seen media reporting. I have no idea what that's based on. What I can say is that I've been engaging as one of the portfolio ministers with Deputy Prime Minister Miles and Foreign Minister Wong on um, engaging with people who have an interest in debating in AUKUS, and I'm sure we'll have a good debate, but I'm sure that in the end, um, people will understand why um, AUKUS is in the national interests of Australia. Like, this is about us having strong national defence capabilities, which increases our sovereignty. If you've got a weak defence, you have to rely on other countries a lot more than if you've got a strong um, defence capability. It might increase our sovereignty after the several decades that we're relying on the US and the UK well, to help supply this and these and build these submarines. Well, right? we're moving quickly. We'll have the first uh, nuclear-powered conventionally armed submarines in the early 2030s. But importantly, that's just one pillar of the AUKUS Technology Pact, because it's all about sharing technologies to advance all our national security. AUKUS Pillar 2 has us working on advanced technologies around things like quantum, cyber, uh, hypersonics, and all those things actually could have payoffs a lot quicker than nuclear-powered submarines. And that's why we're investing in them, because they're really important for defending this country. I don't want to make this about Paul Keating, but doesn't he speak for a large chunk of the Labor base, uh, rank-and-file members uh, concerned about AUKUS? Uh, look, I, I respect Paul Keating's contribution, um, not just to the Australian Labor Party, to but to this nation. The Hawke-Keating governments um, were enormously successful in laying down the, the paths for prosperity, for the economic um, growth that we've seen. But on this, he's completely wrong. He's completely wrong. He doesn't reflect the strategic challenges we face both the environment we face, for example, the biggest military build-up since 45, the um, greatest strategic uncertainty since 1945. So he's wrong on the strategic environment we face. He's also wrong on the military solutions. What he's suggesting would would not meet the requirements of a stronger Navy. Um, they would weaken our Navy. And thirdly, they would increase reliance on other parties because ultimately we would have a weaker defence force. And he, he's attitude on AUKUS, and quite frankly, his attitude on what is the great geopolitical contest in Indo-Pacific was frankly insulting. What he said about Penny Wong, for example, was a disgrace. And I know that's strong language. Well, that was he was uh, diminishing what she was doing in the Pacific. Yeah. And, and it, I, I was incredibly angry about it, and I'm still angry about it. it did, he was suggesting that working to improve our relationships with the Pacific wasn't diplomacy. That wasn't what foreign ministers should be doing. Um, and I would submit, and I think any reasonable person who's current with the modern geopolitical contest in our region would understand that one of our critical uh, challenges and one of our critical pursuits is to remain as the strategic partner of choice for the Pacific. The closest point of the Pacific to Australia is four kilometres. And I just found it appalling. And for a man who and again, I don't want to digress into this, although I suspect I'm giving you a bit of colour. Um, for a man who made such a big deal about um, the betrayal of Australia 
at the Battle of Singapore, the importance of the battles on the Kokoda track, which were incredibly important. I represented Australia um, at the 80th commemorations of the Kokoda track last year. They were seminal. I think that's when Australia came of age. Where did they occur? They occurred in the Pacific. They weren't sort of big hoity-toity foreign ministers negotiating deals in the sort of conference rooms of Paris or London. They were fought in the blood and mud of the Pacific, and that's where um, diplomacy needs to be deployed to avoid that in the future. Probably a good uh, point to turn to your uh, Minister for the Pacific hat. Um, uh, this week, I think you were in Solomon Islands, with uh, having met with a few people, including the Prime Minister Manasse Sogavare. What's uh, we've seen headlines recently, which seem to be the Prime Minister um, critiquing Australia and New Zealand. What's your sense of it, having been there and spoken to him this week? Well, I. I had a very good visit to the Solomon Islands and I met a range of ministers as well as Prime Minister Sogavare and uh, I was very um, relieved to hear the assurances that Australia remains the primary security partner for the Solomon Islands and assurances around if um, there are gaps, they'll come to Australia first. That's been their policy for a long time and um, we're proud and privileged to be their security partner of choice and and we've got the the SIAF force, the Solomon Islands Assistance Force there and I met a number of Australian Defence Force personnel and Federal Police and Papua New Guinea and Fijian and New Zealand soldiers there and they're doing great work helping provide peace and stability and security to the Solomon Islands. We're also the biggest development partner there. We, we provide $170 million of development assistance uh, this year. Our infrastructure projects there um, directly employ over 3,000 Solomon Islanders, and there are over 5,000 Solomon Islanders working in Australia in the Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme, earning money, sending it back home to, to support their families and getting skills to grow their economy. So our relationship with the Solomon Islands is strong, and we've just got to keep engaging and, and building it. Did he suggest that Australia should stop criticising its arrangements, Solomon Islands' arrangements with China, including in policing? Oh, I'm not going to get into confidential discussions that I have with any political leader. It's disrespectful and counterproductive to engaging in diplomacy. Our position on that agreement um, is very clear. We we think it should be um, uh, made transparent what's in it. Uh, We think that there's a risk uh, that, uh, depending on what's in it, it, it can undermine the Pacific Family First approach to security that was agreed by all Pacific leaders at the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Week last week last year that said that um, if there's a gaps in security in the Pacific, you should go to the Pacific Family First, and we stand ready to support that. So our concerns are well known. Um, Prime Minister Sogavare understands them, and we keep working on our relationship together. And just last question, the broader Pacific, what is the biggest misconception about what you do in the Pacific, what Australia does in the Pacific? And as part of that, do you think there's too much focus sometimes on everything in the US-China strategic competition lens? I think that's right. And I made a speech to the Solomon Islands National University about that uh, on Tuesday. Every Pacific island nation and Australia has agency in this. We are not... we're not the tools of other countries. We make our own sovereign decisions, including, for example, the PIF leaders deciding security should come from within first. Um, and that's a really important thing that people um, sometimes mistake. Every nation is sovereign. 
Uh, every nation has a shared interest in a peaceful and prosperous Pacific, and that's what I do, and that's what every Australian minister does when we engage out there. We listen to the priorities of the Pacific, we act on them, whether it's acting on climate change, supporting their security efforts by supporting their law and order investments, whether it's in- investing in skills, um, investing in the Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme, giving people an economic future. I, I went to Australia Pacific Training Coalition Centre um, in Honiara where uh, 20-odd young Solomon Islanders women were receiving training and certificate to in um, construction. They all wanted to start their own businesses building homes in Solomon Islands and, and that was being funded by Australians, supported by them. I met two returning meat workers from a meatworks in Scone who were very excited to come back and earn more money uh, for their families and uh, one of them had a proud Meat Workers Union t-shirt on so that was a great sign that they're all working uh, well with the Australian workforce. Uh, our shared economic and security future with the Pacific is our greatest asset and we turn up we listen and act on the priorities of the Pacific. Minister Conroy, thanks very much for speaking with us and exploring these topics with our listeners. My pleasure. This episode was produced by Joe Koning. The executive producer is Molly Glassy. I'm Daniel Hurst. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.